Dr. Jessica Bennett, and this is the Mindful Literacy Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear inspiring interviews with teachers and experts in the field who will give you actionable tips and strategies that you can immediately implement in your teaching practice. In episode eight, I interviewed Dr. Ralph Gardner. Dr. Gardner was my advisor in my doctoral program at Ohio State. His calming presence and everlasting encouragement saw me through to graduation and beyond. I asked Dr. Gardner to tell us about the field-based reading clinic that he started with a special education department at Ohio State that is still running today even after his retirement. He shares with us some compelling statistics on the impact the clinic had on both the young elementary age students it served, as well as the teachers in training who tutored in the clinic as part of their teacher preparation program. We talk about the connection between social-emotional health and literacy skills, and the importance that one-on-one interaction, continuous assessment, and systematic lesson plans have on emerging and reluctant readers. Dr. Gardner is a board member of Mindful Literacy Columbus, and it is following in his footsteps that I hope to open a clinic in our city center of Columbus, Ohio. Hello, Dr. Gardner, and welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. Hello, Jessica. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yes, I'm so excited. You are my... You were my advisor in my doctorate program and um, just someone who I looked up to tremendously as I was budding into the scholar that I am today and the teacher that I am today. And I'm just so honored that you took the time to talk with us. Well, Jessica, you came in with so much uh, excitement and idea. It was just a matter of sort of guiding you. I don't know, <laughs> uh, because you knew where you wanted to go, but you just needed a little guidance on how to get there. And uh, it was my pleasure to work with you because you always came in. You were so passionate about whatever you focused on was 100%. So it was my pleasure. Well, thank you so much. And you know, I've had a chance to reconnect with some of our colleagues at Ohio State, and you know, they brought up you know, I was talking to Megan Miller a couple weeks ago and she was like, oh my gosh, you know, you were pregnant when you started the program. And I remember just the thing that I remember most about you is how you made me feel as a person and as a working mother and how you always made sure I was doing okay and made sure that I, there were so many times when I just thought I couldn't go on and I wanted to quit. And because of your, your leadership, you got me to the finish line. So you know, I just think that's really important. You always put me first as a person. So thank you. I appreciate hearing that. Uh, and I think that's what all teachers should do. Um, I think uh, no matter if you're teaching preschool kids or, or PhD students and everyone in between, you take the time to see that person for who they are and see what they're personal goals are and, and to push them toward the personal goal. I One of the things that I think bothers me the most is when I see teachers who are impersonal in the classroom. They're just teaching the content, but they're not connecting with the children um, beyond the content. And 
I think that's so important because that becomes another motivating factor for achievement by children. Yeah. And adults. Absolutely. There's got to, there's such a social emotional component to learning and it's just part of the human experience that can't be ignored. Like you hear, you see kids sometimes, oh, I just hate that class. And, and what it is is hate how the information is being presented and the coldness that can be going on. But um, it's not that they hate math. It's not that they hate English. It's just that they need somebody to present it in a way that engages them. Now, before we before we pressed record on this podcast, you and I were just catching up and talking away. And um, I want to thank you for, for agreeing to be on the board of Mindful Literacy Columbus, uh, because I, you know, really look to you as a leader in the field. And um, I mean, really, this work is inspired because of the education you provided me at Ohio State. and. And one of the things that was had a tremendous impact, not only on my own content knowledge, but how I um, how I teach teachers, and now how I'm I'm really help guiding parents as well, is um, you started a reading clinic at Ohio State, and I found through my study uh, in acquiring an Orton Gillingham credential. In the community, not many people know about this about this reading clinic and the special education department. And it's something that I think we need to shine a little light on because it was really it was really before the dyslexic community came out and said, hey, we need all kids to have systematic, explicit, direct phonics instruction with a one-on-one -on -one person or in a small group. And you have been, I mean, you you've been doing this for years in a in a school setting. Right. So can you talk to us about the reading clinic and how it got started and and, you know, the opportunities that it provided for not only children, but also for teachers and training? Sure. One of the primary skills that uh, special educators, elementary educators, middle school educators have to teach us is reading because um, it, it opens up so many doors for children uh, once they have are able to master that particular skill. And what we were finding was that even though our students were taking uh, a series of reading courses, um, they really weren't prepared to walk into a special ed classroom and teach um, special ed children how to read. Um, and so what we had conversations with the other faculty in, in our, our college, and we were eventually over a period of time able to um, start our own reading class. And, a, and one component of that reading class was to start a reading clinic in a school building where we would work with um, learners, um, first and, se and, and second graders who are our primary focus, because that's where you're really building that reading skill and giving and preparing them for success so that they can pass the uh, third grade reading, the higher third grade achieve, reading achievement test and, and, and move on. But early on, we also worked with some middle school kids um, in, in building that reading clinic. The whole purpose was to make sure that we could teach explicit phonics that all of our everybody that graduated from the Ohio State Special Education Program knew how to 
teach phonics explicitly to, to young children who were struggling readers. Now, all of the children, in fact, um, very few of the children had a special ed diagnosis in the reading clinic. We worked in an urban school setting, um, and we would go in and ask the principal and the teachers, can you uh, identify for us 20 to 25 children who are struggling readers in your school building? Of course, we got <laughs> all those slots filled uh, fairly quickly, and we're able then to uh, have our students come in twice a week for an hour to work with these kids. And we divided them up. We'd have like a um, 10, 10 a.m. to 11 and 11 to 12 uh, groups of teachers so that we'd have a small enough group for, for myself and at least one GA or many times two GA to actually be on site and supervise them as they instructed reading. And this was to me the, um, a very critical component of, of that. So often we would just send our students out to do field placements uh, and then we would rely on our, our mentor teachers to give us feedback on how they're doing, which is a good system and it, and it works for a lot of, but we were teaching specific skills and we wanted our students to be able to translate those specific skills from the OSU classroom into a tutoring session with these young learners. And so we, I felt it was important for me to be on site and to give immediate in real time feedback. And so that became a, a, an important part of this whole process. And we would give feedback during the session, after the session, our students would then have to present their students two to three times during the semester, uh, their data, how they're doing, what challenges they were experiencing. And it was a collaboration uh, between faculty, uh, graduate students, and our undergraduate seniors, because all of our students were seniors or master level students. And it was fun. Students learned, uh, the, the, the first and second graders made impressive progress. The teachers in the, in the building loved the, the program. The, um, our students felt much more confident about teaching reading as they left. And I still get uh, feedback from people, from students who have been in the field, uh, out of teaching now, and they'll, and they'll contact me and and tell me that they are still using some of the strategy that they learned in the clinic and that their students are thriving. So um, it's just an exciting process and it was fun for me. It wasn't like working. I said, I was oftentimes sit this, I get paid to do this. This is fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, you were mentioning, um, you know, we you set up so that the kids would each have a one-on-one -on -one tutor twice a week for an hour each session. Can you talk about the kind of impact that amount of time makes in a child's um, experience in learning how to read? Well, one-on-one -on -one for, and, and, and let's say we had slotted an hour, but actually 
the time that they had actually in, in tutoring was more like 45 to 50 minutes because we had to transport them back and forth. But because it's one-on-one, -on -one, there's so much opportunity for interaction. The students were, we, our OHU students were taught to constantly assess the student process. We had um, very systematic lesson plans, starting with um, phonemic awareness, then um, dealing with phonics, then dealing with sight words, which are an important component of, of reading too. And, and then going into actually reading text based on the things that the student had learned during that lesson and, and using very systematic uh, instruction. And we would supervise them, give them feedback. If, for example, we saw somebody um, doing something, making the wrong sound, teaching the wrong sound, which happens in classrooms, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and one of the sounds that often was, was the, the sound for the letter R um, is often taught wrong or, students struggling with how to teach the difference between the B and the D uh, and getting the students. We would provide real-time instruction on making those changes and correcting those, those um, problems for students. And I, and I think at first students were a little bit reluctant saying, they're just standing, they're standing over my shoulder giving me feedback. But by the end, by a couple of weeks into the program, they realized we were just there to collaborate with them. And they would, they would eagerly share information with us because then they saw the student making growth. We required that they record data, uh, both in oral reading, um, spelling, and um, comprehension so that they could see whether or not that child was making growth. Then if not, then we need to do something else. And as, as you know, some students learn much more quickly than others. And some students have a little, sometimes have challenging behaviors that go along with academic instruction. So um, it just became a very supportive, positive environment. And students would make, um, it was not unusual, for students to make uh, progress of a year um, to two year uh, in a semester. And then uh, be, and some of the students, we were able to get to the point where they were at grade level or above grade level before they left the program. Yes. Which was always exciting. That's amazing. So the students in the element, the elementary age students would come into the program for one semester and you were, you were able, you were to see one to two years growth with them within that semester, working with that same tutor. And sometimes that meant they went from below grade levels to at or above grade level in one semester. In one semester. Um, and it just depends. Not every student was able to make that progress. Some students, as I said, are very, uh, they're, their um, progress was much slower, but it was not unusual to see a student just take off. Because um, remember, these were students who were in general ed classrooms primarily, um, but they were not really benefiting totally from the instruction they were receiving, and they needed a little bit more. 
teachers are swamped. Um, you have 30 kids in a classroom by yourself, particularly in, in some of the urban classrooms, and 20 of them are below where they need to be. It's very difficult for a teacher to then meet the needs of all of those. So for us to be able to come in and then provide that kind of uh, instruction, sort of fill that gap and allow that child to go back into the regular classroom and continue to make progress uh, once they actually got the basics down in reading. Wow. I'm blown away. I mean, I, I was a graduate assistant in that clinic um, for a year during my time at Ohio State with you, and I got to see firsthand how it worked, the impact that it had, you know, teaching teachers how to write those lessons, but I don't think I realized, you know, I think I always knew deep down that that, that was happening. I didn't realize one to, it was not unusual for one to two years in just a semester. I mean, I see that with my students now that I work with one-on-one, -on -one, but it's just, I just want to impress upon the listeners how incredible that is and what an opportunity that is for kids to get to sit with a tutor one-on-one, -on -one, even if twice a week for an hour for even a semester. Can you imagine if they had gone a year, you know, or, or two years, like now the sky's the limit. Right, right. And that's really, um, and there would be some students that we would have for the year, and then there was a couple students, a few students who we'd have for two years, mainly because they needed it. Um, and those were the students who were making slower progress. Uh, but for some students, they would go through in, in one semester and they would be fine. Now, because we were um, in, in the school, we worked with the schools and we needed to make sure that uh, we minimize some of the behavior problems. So to do that, uh, we use uh, incentives. Uh, and so the incentives that we use that we got approved by the school were just stickers. Um, students would get stickers. Um, and at, if they made a lot of progress, they might get a special pencil. We would make a big deal about that. We used a lot of um, positive praise for students making progress. And you would be in the clinic, and I, I don't know if you remember this, uh, uh, Jessica, but you'd be in the clinic and all of a sudden, kids would come running up to you. I read 50 words in a minute. I, or I read 70 words in a minute. And just the excitement that they had. And all of these were in kids who were academically at risk who said, well, I, don't, I can't learn how to read. I mean, we had first graders walking in the door saying, I don't think I can learn how to read. I'm struggling. A first grader, six years old, ready to give up on reading. And by the end of the semester, they were reading. That's exciting for me. <laughs> it totally is. And I think, you know, just to provide context for those who maybe have not studied reading data and, you know, some of the, I mean, really, since the invention of reading and writing, there's sort of been um, social injustice component to it. There has been haves and haves not. If you have, you can read. If you don't, you can't. And, you know, when we look across time since we've been collecting data on reading achievement, you know, one of the stats that I've recently looked at is killing me and it's that 85% of kids in juvenile detention are illiterate. 
And that goes right back to, I mean, you, you are such a, a leader in the field of reading instruction, but before that you were kind of a behavior specialist and you taught kids coming to the table, we got to get the behaviors under control so that we can get your brain ready to read, you know? So I'm just thinking that little first grader comes into your clinic, says he can't read, is maybe acting out in class because it's hard for him and he doesn't have the attention that he needs to get to where he can read. And then he leaves the, he leaves reading and maybe we've mitigated and, you know, I don't, maybe we've kind of changed the trajectory of the path he would have been on otherwise. Well, my uh, first professional position was as a social worker for juvenile delinquents who were adjudicated. Uh, and um, I, I work, well, juvenile, de- emotionally disturbed juvenile delinquents. <laughs> so, uh, and, I, and I worked in that field before I went back and got my master's in education. My undergrad degree was in psychology. And so I went back and got a degree in a special education. And that's when I went into the classroom. And I was excited about going into the classroom because I was working with children who had a special education label of behavior disorder. And it gave me a chance to not only impact their social behavior, but also their academic behavior. And the link between those is so strong. Whenever you saw a child beginning to take off academically, their, their classroom behavior automatically mirrored that. You have fewer disruptions, uh, fewer um, occasions of aberrant behavior in the classroom. And so good instruction has a therapeutic impact on, on children. Yeah, totally. I was talking to one of my friends, uh, Kelly Young, who's a tutor, and she was she told this really touching story of how she took on a client who was at that time in eighth grade, and she and she has a severe reading disability, and her social emotional status was just totally shattered because of the experience, you know, and she just would say stuff. And Kelly shared this in the interview that, you know, the girl would say stuff like, I don't want to live. If I have to do, if I have to do that kind of phonics work and instruction anymore, like as a 14 year, like, you know, I'm done. So, you know, Kelly kind of went in using a different approach so that she could kind of heal that social, emotional um, distress that she was in to allow her to access print absolutely you know and I, I i and i think you've heard this story before i had a similar experience with a young man named pico who um was graduating from high school um football star from a local high school with a scholarship to um one of the um ohio schools not ohio state university uh, <laughs> and but he couldn't read he could not read at at all. And so um, I met him through a colleague of mine, uh, Donna Ford, who's a gifted, who's in gifted ed. And um, she said she met this young man who was very smart, but couldn't read. And so I started working with him and he was able to make a lot of progress. But what was tragic was you couldn't duplicate the 12 years he had missed already. So even though we taught him to read and, and now you read, I, he and I are still in contact. 
He just texted me over the weekend to see how I was doing. He's fine. He's a businessman. He all, he already was a businessman. He was um, doing grills at the time, which are gold teeth. Uh, but now he has, he owns several houses that he's rehabbed and renting out. Um, he's raising a family. Just a great person with tremendous potential, but he couldn't read. And the system that failed him, we were able to teach him how to read, write, and to this day, whenever I'm around him, he said, that's the person that taught me how to read it. And it really was just the ability was there, but it needed to be approached in a different way than what he was being taught. And uh, just that's what got me motivated uh, to do a lot of the reading instruction and, and to focus on that because I saw how it transformed his life. But I saw how it transformed his life on the back end of his school experience, and therefore it limited his opportunity because he could have gone to college. He could have become anything he wanted had somebody done that in the first and second grade for him, but it didn't happen there. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that you got to work with him when you did, and it's so touching that you're still in contact with him. Uh, I think these kind of stories are the ones that keep me motivated to keep pushing um, forward with this nonprofit with Mindful Literacy Columbus and raising funds to get students like Kiko, like, you know, like and insert the name of these stories of kids who have been imprinted on our hearts so that they can live to their fullest potential. Absolutely. And, and isn't that the dream for any any parent? that your child was able to achieve whatever dreams that they have. And when children are deprived of those opportunities because they aren't instructed well, then we're all diminished because we don't get to benefit from the gifts that they have to give to society. Yes, and that is so wise of you, <laughs> you know, talking about a collective consciousness. and. You know, we're in a time right now where things like COVID, things like Black Lives Matter movement, that is our collective consciousness, right? And so, and even things like the climate crisis, I think about, you know, kids who have dyslexia are, are in many ways very gifted and brilliant, and they think outside the box in ways that I can't be taught how to do. And these are the people who are going to solve the world's these world's crisis and problems and bring people together. And so I feel like, you know, I wrote a grant for the nonprofit for last year called the cell block of illiteracy. And it, and it really, it really is. And then, you know, we backed it up with the data about the kids in juvenile detention, but the other piece of it too, that, we're, you know, we're talking about um, kids who just maybe, I don't know, kids, especially in the reading clinic, like if you had not reached them, they would have possibly been on the trajectory to be put into special education when they weren't actually, that wasn't, they maybe weren't really neurodiverse. They just needed, they just needed a different approach. And so I want to talk just a little bit about, you know, we talked about, about overrepresentation of African-American particularly African-American boys in special education and just the impact that has on a person, like on, on the way that they see themselves in the world. Well, and I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, 
sometimes kids, children are told, even by a teacher, um, you're not going to be successful. You can't learn how to read. You can't do math or you can't do whatever. And you think, well, no, teachers wouldn't say that. Parents wouldn't say, but they do. And that impacts these kids. That's one of the things they had been told to um, Kiko. He was told by a teacher that he would never learn how to read, that he, his learning disability was just too much for him to learn how to read. Well, that wasn't true. What was true is that the teacher did, know, did not know how to teach Kiko how to read. And so instead of trying to expand his or her skills, I don't know who it was, they projected onto Kiko an inability to read. And that's why I'm so excited about what you're doing with uh, Mindful Literacy for Columbus. The fact that you are reaching out to those kids who so often fall in the cracks, um, who just need to a, a little boost to get connected, um, to excite their imagination. Um, the idea of reading and opening up. Once you're able to gain knowledge, and you know how to gain knowledge for the reading, everything's available to you. You are then able to do all kinds of things because you can perceive yourself doing different things. Um, you're not restricted by your neighborhood or what your parents do or, or haven't done, but you are now able to see things through the eyes of literature that you otherwise would not see. And therefore your imagination and your goals can be limitless. It was beautifully said. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, so, and being a board member of Mindful Literacy Columbus. I'm excited. I'm really excited um, to see how this shapes up because, you know, in my heart of hearts, I want a reading clinic so we can train teachers and impact as many students as you did in your career at, at Ohio State. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So thank you. Sure. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on Facebook at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our Facebook page for our nonprofit is at Mindful Literacy Columbus. If you are a parent, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Parent Society. If you are a teacher, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Teacher Tribe. You can also find us on Instagram at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our website is mindfulliteracypractice.org. Make sure to check out our nonprofit tab where we give you all the information you need to find a scholarship, become a tutor, make a donation, or volunteer. Thank you so much for listening with the deepest gratitude.